certainly seemed to be the beginning of the Shiite era in the Middle East. The Abbasid Caliphate, once the most powerful on earth, had been greatly weakened, and the Shiite sects that had been pushed to the peripheries of the empire were in the ascendant, creating states that would rival and eventually overshadow the Abbasid. The mightiest of these were the Fatimids, who at one point would even conquer Baghdad itself. But in any case, established their own caliphate, with its capital at Cairo, which would become the most powerful city in the Middle East and the largest city in the world, a status it would retain for centuries. Within the Abbasid Caliphate, a family of Shiite advisors had essentially taken control of the figurehead caliphs. The response when it came would not be from a reinvigorated Abbasid Caliphate but rather from zealously Sunni Turkish military forces. While this situation was a far cry from the glory of the Islamic Empire under Harun al-Rashid or al-Ma'mun, that old Golden Age Empire was never coming back. The Muslim world would continue to be a great force, producing some tremendous intellectual achievements, but politically it was going to become even more divided with successive waves of invaders we can't really understand the Arab and Muslim world today without examining the trials that it went through. So in today's episode, we're going to look at one part of that, the rise of the most powerful Shiite state, the Fatimid Caliphate, which would change forever the balance of power in the Muslim world. Okay, well if you've followed our most recent episodes, you know that the Shiites of the empire had been largely pushed out to the fringes. They were driven out of Iraq, into Bahrain, Yemen, Central Asia, and particularly North Africa. Now we've talked before about the numerous factions among the Shia. The big divide was between those leaders who preached peaceful coexistence with the Abbasids and those who advocated rebellion. So within the empire, many Shiite groups actually settled with the caliphate and gained a good deal of influence. Ironically, as the central Abbasid administration became weaker, the Shia grew in influence and would eventually occupy some of the top positions within this caliphate which we think of as the center of the Sunni world. Well, that's a subject for another episode, and we're going to talk about the influence of Shia within the Abbasid Caliphate. But we're going to talk today about those groups that were essentially pushed out of the area of Abbasid control, but used that as a springboard to come back even more powerfully, and particularly the Fatimids. Well, it was largely those Ismaili Shia who were driven out, but not eliminated, would grow into powerful dynasties of their own, as powerful as the central Abbasid state and eventually overshadow it. Now this is kind of to be expected. 
essentially independent states in Yemen, Central Asia, Northern Persia, Bahrain, what is today the eastern coast of Saudi Arabia would develop. And as the center of the empire is getting weaker, you would expect the fringes, the outlying areas, to assert more power. But only one of those groups, only one of those essentially independent states, would develop into a great empire itself, strong enough to actually claim the caliphate for itself and to take over Baghdad. That group was the Fatimids, and that's who we're going to talk about today. Well, if you had been making bets back in the 10th century, you probably would not have put your money on the Ismaili leader, Abdullah al-Mahdi Billah, who escaped Abbasid persecution in Syria, disguised as a merchant, and took refuge among the Berber tribes way out in Morocco to become the founder of the next great caliphate. Now, if you remember, just going back a little ways, the Ismaili Shia were under great persecution in the 800s. They were under such great persecution that they declared that their 8th, ninth, and 10th Imams were all in the state of spiritual hiding to keep them safe from persecution. So when Abdullah fled from Syria with his son, and he fled way outside the borders of the Caliphate, he took up refuge in North Africa. Because this was an area essentially the Abbasids had not controlled for centuries, and he took refuge among the Berber tribes. So in that situation, he seemed to be more hidden than any of his predecessors. And when he got there, the local leader of the Berbers threw him in jail because of his Ismaili beliefs. This was hardly a promising start. Like I say, you wouldn't have bet on this guy to become a great emperor. So just to review a little bit about the Ismaili, one of the distinguishing aspects of the Ismaili Shia is what they call the Dawah. And Dawah means invitation or call. A person who makes the call is a Da'i. And this is a very uh, common Muslim term for what we would call proselytizing or evangelizing. Amongst the Ismailis, however, this became essentially a secret network because they were highly suppressed. So they had to do their work in secret. And you remember we talked last time about this idea of taqiyya, the idea that it was legal to hide your beliefs. You could pretend to not be an Ismaili Shia if it would help the overall faith. And because they had this basically secret network of da'is, people who were going out recruiting and proselytizing and who were hiding their identities, they could justify this. So that's what they did. They established a very elaborate and secretive, I mean, what we would call a spy organization, basically. But what their goal was, was to recruit people. And in fact... One of those branches, which we're going to talk about in a later episode, became known as the Assassins, and that's where we get the word assassin, uh, but it grew out of this, again, secret network. Well, that was a different kind of spy network, but it was based on the same thing. It was based on the same structure. Anyway, the one we're going to talk about today was an Ismaili Dawah, which was based overtly in Syria, but it sent their messengers out throughout Persia, the Arabian Peninsula, and North Africa. And one of the most successful of these was a man called Abu Abdullah Ashi'i. 
Now, he had met up with a group of Katama Berbers during their pilgrimage to Mecca. So they were already Muslims. And as everyone comes to Mecca, uh, they boasted of how independent their tribe was, how their tribe defied the local authorities who were based in Tunisia, and how they had defeated all attempts to suppress them. They were living out in the desert. So a Shi'i, and remember, his job is basically recruiting promising groups into the Ismaili faith, he saw them with their independent spirit as being uh, prime candidates for recruitment. So he went out to Algeria to work among them. And this is how the Ismaili Dawah worked. I mean, you found a group that looked like they were good prospects, groups who were rebelling against central authority, who had strong leaders and strong cohesion, and particularly who had territory of their own that they could use. Because remember, the Ismailis are essentially rebels outcast from the central Abbasid Caliphate, which at this point has really become weakened down to nothing. So uh, this is what he did, and he found the Kutama as a very promising group. Now, who would have expected that they would found a great empire that would last for centuries? But that's the way history goes. Well he was able to give them a sense that they were on the right side of history that they were the true believers that they were the ones that god was going to come and prosper and that the other political leaders the ones that they were fighting against were wrong they were corrupt and misguided so that certainly fit into their rebellious spirit so they uh, embraced him eagerly well meanwhile abdullah ashii gets word that abdullah al-mahdi who is I mean, essentially the imam of the Ismailis, uh, is in prison in the Sahara Desert in Morocco. Now, the periphery of the Sahara is already home to all kinds of rebel groups, various Berber tribes and breakaway sects like the Kharijites, who we talked about from way, way back, who were the original rebels, really, in this situation. They were hanging on here as well. So as Ashii is leading his Kutama Berbers into expanding their territory and defeating the groups around them, uh, they defeat a Kharijite group that was uh, semi-independent and conquer their territory. So he realizes that the supposed imam, the promised imam, is in a prison not too far away. It's in a fairly weak area, and his Berbers are very strong. So he leads a conquest out to this area, and he attacks, and eventually he conquers most of Tunisia, which is where they had been in conflict with. Uh, and there he's able to release Abdullah al-Hamati to become... Uh, essentially the caliph ruler of this new state. They continue to expand. They conquer much of Tunisia, and it is there on the southern coast of Tunisia that Abdullah al-Mahdi, now the leader of this group, sets up his capital, which he names, appropriately enough, Mahdiya, after himself. Uh, by the way, I have a friend from Mahdiya in Tunisia, which today is a lovely coastal resort town. But Mahdiya was a planned city, and it would become the model for several other cities in the Fatimid state, but it would particularly become the, the model for Cairo, which becomes the greatest city. In any case, it's very important to note here that Abdullah Ashii, uh, this Dawah, he's giving an ideology to the Berbers to 
give them something to guide and to justify what they're doing. But the rebellion was already there. They had already been bragging about their rebellion and how they were conquering territory before he even came along. And so this is very common what happens in a lot of places to which Islam spreads. They provide an ideology, a strong religious ideology, to justify uh, sort of the conflicts that are already there and to justify the leadership that's already there. And this is one reason it grows. And even to this uh, current day, that's what happens in a lot of places. Okay, so we have this situation where there's a disgruntled group already in rebellion. We give them an ideology that says God is on your side. He wants you to win. God says you're right. Okay, and the territory and the power will come with it. And in this case, as in many, religion is being put on top of existing racial, ethnical, tribal differences. The Kutama Berbers already have a very strong identity, very strong tribal solidarity. Now they have to go with this, the true religion. Anyway, it's not known as the Kutama Caliphate, but the Fatimid Caliphate. So what's really impressive here is how Abdullah al-Mahdi, who was, remember, a guy who was languishing in prison, becomes not just a figurehead for these Berbers, but actually becomes the powerful leader and builds eventually a very large multi-ethnic empire in which they are going to be just one piece of it. So we've seen already a lot of tribes who are using caliphs basically as their figureheads to do what they want. What's really impressive is that's not what happens to this guy, uh, both with Abdullah al-Hamati and uh, a Shi'i, the, the Da'i, they are very successful in making sure that they stay as the leaders. So Al-Mahdi definitely deserves credit for his leadership. Now, we could comment on why one group succeeds in holding power while the other one doesn't. But the best analysis for this is going to come from the, the greatest of all Arab historians, and that is Ibn Khaldun, three centuries later. We're going to have an episode on him later on. He's one of the most important Muslim thinkers of all time. But in short, just to give a little preview of that, basically the way he would look at this situation is he would say that the Ismailis are essentially fighting for their lives. Their dawah is a matter of survival. They have no place for figurehead rulers. And if they weren't, Abdullah al-Mahdi would have been just another footnote in history. The Abbasid Caliphs, on the other hand, they have been sitting in the lap of luxury for centuries. And it's really been, the dirty work has been done by underlings, by lower classes that they hire out. They bring in the Turks to do the fighting for them, because that's a dirty job. And so they become weak, and those leaders who over generations have been born into this life of absolute luxury, they don't really have the sort of survival instinct. So the same thing is going to happen to the Fatimids eventually. Uh, their leaders are going to start to become lazy, spoiled, and they're eventually going to fall apart. And in fact, uh, they're going to do the same thing the Abbasids do, and that is uh, basically outsource their military. Any state that does that, that outsources their defense to another group, is headed for collapse, or at least becoming figureheads. 
Okay, so let's get back to the Ismailis here. Now, the Ismailis had believed that their last Imam, the eighth Imam, Muhammad ibn Ismail, had gone into a state of spiritual occultation. And remember, we said this with all of the Shiite groups for a lot of reasons, because of persecution um, and because of some mysterious ends to their Imams. They believe that their last Imam had gone into a state of spiritual hiding, meaning he's not dead, but he's not here on this earth. And this is very useful because if he's not here, that means you can't find him, you can't kill him, but he's still providing guidance to us. Well, the Ismailis had done the same thing. They believed that their eighth Imam was in this state of spiritual hiding, and he would return at the end of time uh, to bring the essentially the kingdom of God and set things right. And this is very common standard Shiite doctrine. Where the Ismailis are going to differ, and it's really a question of the situation they find themselves in, because of the political situation, they're going to find they don't have to do this. So they're still waiting for their eighth Imam to come back. Okay. Now, Abdullah al-Mahdi, who, if you had followed the line, he would have been the 11th Imam, he was in prison. Now he's in charge of a pretty big state. It's covering much of North Africa. It's got a capital. And so we no longer have to say that the Imam is in hiding. He is here. And so to trace the line back, we have the ninth and 10th Imams uh, who came in between those two. We say, well, they were in hiding. But now with Abdullah al-Mahdi, he is back on earth. Now, to stress the fact that he was the real deal, Al-Mahdi traced his lineage all the way back to the first Imam, who of course, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was, I mean, the, essentially the key figure in Shia. And specifically to show that his line of descent came from the offspring of Ali and Ali's favorite wife, uh, he would have many more, Ali's favorite wife, Fatima who was also the prophet's daughter. So he took the name Al-Fatimi, meaning the, the, what we would call the Fatimid. And this is where the name of the dynasty comes from. Because remember at this point, the Shia have many different sects, many different groups. They're all following slightly different lineages from Ali down to their uh, current leaders. And so he is stressing the fact that his lineage comes from the offspring of Ali and Ali's wife, Fatima, who is the prophet's daughter. So the lineage comes from Ali, but the fact that the mother is also related to the prophet by blood makes it like extra special. Now you might remember way back when the Abbasids took over from the Umayyads, they stressed that they were bringing the caliphate back into the family of the prophet, not this direct line. Uh, so they trace their lineage to the family of the prophet, but not through Ali and Fatima. And so by calling themselves the Fatimids, they're stressing the fact that they have a much closer lineage. Uh, now, the Abbasids, they could definitely see the threat, so they had their scholars trace and publish a different genealogy that claimed that Abdullah al-Mahdi was not in fact a descendant of Ali and Fatima, but was in fact the descendant of a Jewish blacksmith. That was not intended to be a compliment, by the way. 
Okay, so with this much momentum behind them, and what they see is real legitimacy, the Fatimids go one step further. And so Abdullah al-Mahdi not only declares himself the living Imam, but the legitimate Khalif. Now, no one else has called themselves a Khalif yet. So we've had the Rashidun Khalifs, we've had the Umayyads, and then we've had the Abbasids. But now... Uh, Al-Mahdi is going to claim that he is the legitimate Khalif. Now, I mean, you know the way it works. There can't be two Khalifs. So when he says he's the legitimate Khalif, that means the Abbasid one is not. So he's not only the sole leader of the Shia, but of all Muslims. Now, if you've been following these episodes so far, you can recognize that this man has the titles of the Imam, the Mahdi, and the Khalif. He's basically covering everything. And of course the Ismailis, like the other Shiite sects, had believed that the Mahdi would come and establish final victory and establish the domain of true Islam. But Abdullah was the only one who really saw his physical state on earth expanding to such a nature that he could say it was happening right now. So it was quite natural for him to assume that his state, his little empire that he was building, was one day going to conquer everything. If he's the real imam, and he's establishing essentially this kingdom of God, at one point this is going to absorb everything. And as we mentioned before, the Ismailis saw their doctrine as intended to cover all people of all religions. They were not just covering all Muslims, but they believed that their doctrine reconciled Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, everybody and they thought that this was it. It was really happening. In this state that was being built, this Fatimid state was going to be the consummation of this. Now there's one significant difference here in the Fatimid case. Of course the end times vision, this sort of uh, second coming that we have when the Mahdi is going to come as a savior and bring the end of history, that's common to Shia. But because Abdullah al-Mahdi believed he was that guy, and he was also establishing a very real, tangible, earthly kingdom, and he would eventually die, and he was going to pass leadership on to his children through his generations, so they had to change the doctrine slightly. He believed his empire would last till the end of time, but it was going to pass through a regular dynasty of his son, and then his son, and so on. So the concept of the Imam in Ismaili Shia, and this is really the big difference between them and every other branch of Shia, is that they believe that the Mahdi is not only someone who comes at the end of time, but someone who has come and is going to have a regular chain of descendants for all times. And so, as we said, the Ismailis today, they trace this all the way up past 40 Imams, because they believe it continues. Well, this may sound very ambitious, but we have to cut him some slack. I mean, let's face it, any state that lasts for five years assumes that it's going to reign forever and that it's the culmination of history. I mean, let's face it, even after the Cold War, we had a book in the United States that was very popular called The End of History, because this was it. So we can cut uh, the Imam, Khalif, and Mahdi here a little bit of slack.
Ottomans were expanding, the Abbasid state was disintegrating. Now, they never really held much of North Africa, and Egypt was largely independent by this time. By the time the fourth Fatimid Khalif came along, and his name was uh, Muzaddin Allah, and he was one of the most important and most famous, this was about 40 years after the founding of the dynasty. Egypt was effectively controlled by a Turkish military officer who was officially, supposedly subordinate to the Abbasid Khalif, but was basically independent and did his own thing. And that was pretty common through much of the empire. Um, the Khalifs didn't control much of anything outside Baghdad, and to be honest, they didn't control a whole lot inside Baghdad. So this Turkish state in Egypt uh, fell pretty quickly in front of the Fatimids. Remember, they were conquering fast. Uh, they had a lot of momentum behind them, and so they took over Egypt pretty quickly. So Musladin would establish a new capital in Egypt. Well, this would become one of the most important cities in the world. The Fatimids had already established the precedent of building planned cities, they did this in Mahdiya. They did this on their next capital, Mansouria. And so they come to Egypt and decide this is where their capital is going to be. There was already a small city uh, called Fustat that had been established. They established their capital outside of Fustat. They named it Medinat al-Qahira, which means the victorious. Uh, supposedly this refers to the planet Mars, which was ascendant at the time that construction began. But, of course, the name Victorious definitely had another meaning in their version of history. They saw themselves as Victorious. In any case, Al-Qahira, which is still the name of the city in Arabic, would be Romanized as Cairo, which comes from the Italian pronunciation. And Cairo would become an administrative capital outside of Fustat. Well, Cairo grows tremendously. It will eventually uh, encompass Fustat. It will accomplish the old Coptic city in the fortress of Babylon, and today it's basically swallowed even the Pharaonic city of Giza as well. So Cairo is today, by a huge margin, the largest city in the Arab world. I mean, you have to add up the next few cities on the list together to even get close to its size. And it's beginning with the Fatimids that it becomes the most important city in the Arab world. And that's really a role that it continues at least until the end of the 20th century. Uh, we could debate today, uh, it probably is not. Uh, Riyadh is probably much more important, uh, Dubai much more important. But for most of history after this point, Cairo really becomes the center of the Arab world and the Muslim world. And then once the Mongols attack in the 13th century, it definitely replaces Baghdad, which will never regain its position. Well, Cairo and Egypt will eventually be conquered back by the Sunnis. The Shiite Caliphate here will only last about two and a half centuries. But they really set the groundwork for the future of the Arab world. Most of the key institutions are set up by Shiite Fatimids. Al-Azhar University and Mosque, which today is the most prestigious Sunni school of law and theology in the world, was established by the Fatimids as a Shiite school, and it was patterned after the one they had in their first capital, uh, Mahdiya, which was also called Al-Azhar. And just as a note, the, the word Al-Azhar, Azhar means 
flowering. Uh, Zahra means flower, and that's also a name for Fatima, who they trace their lineage through. Azhar is like a superlative. It means the most flowering, but it is, again, a reference to Fatima. Well, they established this, which by some counts is the oldest university in the world, but it really becomes the center of Sunni law, but it was established by Shiites. And in fact, if you visit Old Islamic Cairo, which I highly, highly recommend that you should do, most of that area came from the Fatimid period, began in the Fatimid period. The city walls and the gates that surrounded, I mean, essentially set the boundaries of the old city were Fatimid. Now, many of the buildings inside come from a later period from the Mamluks, but much of the important uh, structures and institutions were set up by the Fatimids. Baghdad is going to decline, it's going to be destroyed, and, and never really regain its importance. But this nucleus that is established in Cairo is going to become the key of the Arab world. Uh, for a time in history, Cairo will be the largest city in the world. It will sort of lose that, but it still remains the, the most important city in the Middle East for centuries. So this is an interesting point here. We tend today to divide the world the Muslim world at least, into Sunni and Shia. We tend to think of Shia as being associated with Iran, which of course is Persian, and think of the Arab world as mostly Sunni. But when we trace Islamic history, or particularly Arab history, the narrative usually goes from the Umayyads to the Abbasids, then to the Fatimids, and later on we're going to go to the Ayyubids and the Mamluks, who we'll talk about in the future. But so this Shiite Fatimid dynasty is really a key building block in uh, Arab history. If you notice today, most Arab flags have some combination of four colors, white, red, black, and green. Probably notice that you see these on most Arab flags in some combination. Wonder why they have these particular colors. Well, those colors represent the royal colors of the great caliphates. The Abbasids were black, the Umayyads were white, the green represents the Fatimids. So even though we associate uh, Shia with Iran and Persia today, you will note that most of the flags of the Arab world represent, in part, the Shiite Fatimid dynasty in addition to these three Sunni Arab empires. Okay. Now just a side note I should make here, although the rulers of the Fatimid state are definitely Shiite, the majority of people living in the state, particularly in Egypt, are, are Sunni. They will remain Sunni. Uh, very few of them convert. There were no forced conversions. Uh, there were, nor do we seem to see that large numbers of people converted anyway. Um, Egypt will continue to be a, a very important center for the Christian population. There's only one caliph, who we're going to talk about in the future, al-Hakim, who really puts um, intense pressure against the non-Shia. But for the most part, uh, the population is Sunni. Before they get there, the population remains Sunni after they leave. Okay, now by this point you've probably noticed that I'm throwing around the terms Arab and Islamic here, and of course there is a huge overlap in them. 
And of course, today it's very inappropriate to equate the two things together, to say that Muslim means Arab. The vast majority of Muslims in the world today are not Arab, and a significant portion of the Arabs of the world are not Muslim. But a lot of people are both. The reason I'm starting to use both terms here separately is we're beginning to get a sense of where things are certainly starting to split. For example, places like Egypt, Morocco, Sudan were definitely not Arab countries until Islam arrived there. And if we really dis define uh, the Arab cultural identity first and foremost as being based on the Arabic language, which is really the center, those places did not have the Arabic language until Islam arrived. But for several centuries, those two cultural identities basically went together. So when someplace like Morocco or Egypt was controlled by the Umayyad dynasty, uh, they were controlled by an Islamic dynasty, which was very Arab, which enforced the use of the Arabic language, and so both things are happening at the same time. Now we're seeing where th the distinction begins to become important, where things are going to split. Um, as we've described, the great unified caliphate has disintegrated in reality, if not in name. So on one side, uh, really the zealous leadership of the Sunni response, the people who are out uh, fighting actively against the Shia and trying to reestablish Sunni power become Turks. They're not Arabs. On the other side, uh, really the center of these Arab countries, like Egypt, for example, is embodied in a Shiite dynasty. And a place like Cairo, which is really the, the center of the Arab world, it is the largest Arab city in the world, and definitely considers itself, it's the headquarters of the Arab League, it is established by this Fatimid dynasty. So again, we have to keep it uh, separate here. This idea of associating Shia with Iran and Persia, it really is not appropriate at this time. It's not going to be until several centuries that that happens. And so, in a sense, uh, we can talk about tracing Arab history very definitely through the Fatimids. Some aspects of Muslim history do not go through them. So, for example, for the Turks, their historical line does not go through these Shiite Fatimids. So this is why it's important to make this distinction. Well, in any case, uh, there will be, later on, waves of invasions centuries of invasions, over two centuries of crusades, then the devastation of the Mongols and the nomadic tribes that follow them. Well, you might think that the Sunni and Shia would join together against these common enemies, but that's not what happens. In fact, it's far more convenient for Sunni Turks to ally with European crusaders against the nasty Shia, or the other way around. In so, if we sort of think of the example of, let's say, a pot uh, that has numerous cracks in it. Well, you put a, a lot of pressure on top of it, what happens? Those cracks get worse and the whole thing uh, cracks open. And that's essentially what's going to happen here. So on the eve 
of this wave of invasions. We're getting very close now, around the 11th century to the time where the Crusaders are going to start laying in, in very great numbers uh, claim to much of the uh, Middle East. They're going to start invading, and the nomadic invasions from Central Asia are going to come and really devastate the Muslim world. On the eve of these invasions, we have a situation where North Africa and part of the Eastern Arabian Peninsula is controlled by this Shiite Fatimid dynasty. It's a Shiite Arab Fatimid dynasty. And the eastern portion is controlled ostensibly. There is still an Abbasid Caliphate, but the real power in the Abbasid Caliphate are the Turkish military, and as we said again, zealously Sunni Turkish military. I mean, there's really, up until this point, there's no such thing as zealously Sunni until the Turks really come along and take that up. And both of them are going to end up being attacked by these various outside forces, but it's going to really solidify this division of the Muslim world. And it's, it's really never going to come back together again. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about that in the future. We're going to talk about these divisions. Uh, but bo the bottom line is here, we are headed towards a Muslim world that's divided between Turks and Arabs, and eventually the Persians are going to become largely independent. Now, Islam is going to continue to expand after this. And it's important to realize that even the area we're talking about at this point in history, going from Spain to the borders of India, uh, this is not the majority of the Muslim world today. The largest Muslim populations are in Southeast Asia, into Africa, and in South Asia. We haven't even gotten to those areas yet. Islam is going to expand, but that is mostly going to be through trade. They're not going to be establishing the kind of dynasties that we're seeing, with some exceptions. There's some very important ones, but the great united caliphate that is sort of behind us. And Cairo is going to become the center of at least the Arabic Muslim Empire. And this is why I start using these two terms. It's definitely the center of the Arab Muslim world. It will not be the center of the Turkish Muslim world, which will have their own capital and eventually establish their capital in Istanbul. But the Fatimids really invested a lot in the Arabic language and the Arab cultural identity. So as the successors to the rule of Islam, as they saw it, they were the caretakers of Arabic. And remember, Arab culture is very closely tied with Islam. So under their rule, the institutions for studying, teaching, clarifying the rules of the Arabic language grew. So again, don't associate Shia with Iran. Some of the greatest developments in the Arabic language were from these Shiite Fatimids. So, whether they intended it or not, and they definitely didn't, the Fatimids were establishing what would become an Arab world. Okay, well, one reason that we trace the main line of Islamic history through the Shiite Fatimids is that they were really a high point of culture in the arts. And this is because they really thought that they had arrived, that they were the final word, and that this kingdom they were setting up was it. 
they were consciously trying to rival and to outshine the Abbasids. And remember, the Abbasids had established this golden age. Uh, the Shiite Fatimids are going to establish really another golden age. And we can see even another one in Muslim Spain, which we were going to talk about. So their capital in Tunisia, which they built, was built on a circular design intentionally copying Baghdad. Baghdad was the famous circular uh, capital. In Cairo, these Fatimid Khalifs invested a great deal in supporting the fine arts. And even today, any museum that has a collection of Islamic art is going to have a lot from the Fatimid period. It's one of the great periods of art. But another reason for the success of the Fatimid arts was their geographic position. Now, Egypt has always been the major crossroads between the Mediterranean, the Near East, the Red Sea, and down into the Indian Ocean. The Abbasids had developed their own trade network that went through the Persian Gulf and particularly through the port city of Basra. Now, if you read the Arabian Nights stories, you're always hearing anybody who goes on a journey is going through Basra. This is where Sinbad the sailor goes. Every time he goes on one of his journeys, almost gets killed, uh, goes and does it again. He always goes down to Basra to start his journey. But by this time, the Persian Gulf is becoming quite dangerous. Right? I mean, that's... Uh, nothing strange to us today. It's subject to a lot of rebellions, particularly there are Shiite rebellions in Bahrain, uh, along the coast of what is now Saudi Arabia. And so, as in everything else, the Fatimids are trying to replace the Abbasids in trade. And so it's actually much easier for them to use the Red Sea as a major trading route. If you look at a map, uh, it's a much shorter land distance they have to go across. Now today, of course, we have the Suez Canal, which was built in the 1800s, and that makes Egypt the, ma uh, the major crossing point for all trade by ocean from Europe to Asia. I mean, if you're going to go from Europe to anywhere in Asia, you're going through Egypt. But even before that, uh, the overland route, by unloading your goods in Alexandria, having them carted down to the Red Sea and then put back on ships, that was a much shorter transit rate than anywhere else. And that's, of course, where we build canals. Canals are already built on places that are already the shortest land route, like Panama. So this puts the uh, Fatimids in a great position to really usurp this international trade between the Mediterranean and Asia. So they become a major spot for raw materials and finished goods particularly going from India and China into Europe. Cairo becomes a major center for pottery, glassware, iron, metals. Uh, Fatimid style in lamps, for example, becomes a model for Islamic art for centuries. If you look at any museum that has Islamic art, that is one of the things you're going to find are mosque lamps that are built on this style developed by the Fatimids. They develop a huge industry in textiles, in rugs, in tapestries, which become very famous art pieces. The Fatimids also developed the idea of using figures in art. Now, of course, everybody knows that the actual depiction of living things is avoided in Islam. They see it as a form of idolatry. But an abstract and sort of stylized form that pushes the boundaries, let's say calligraphy in the general shape of a bird or a horse, 
which is clearly not attempting to be a, a realistic representation. Um, this is okay for most people, and the Fatimids really developed this. They developed some really elaborate uh, geometric and figurative calligraphy. But the Khalifs also sponsor the sciences. And again, they're trying to replace the Abbasids in everything. And they basically succeed, uh, with big help from the Mongols later on, who destroy Baghdad. But they had a very conscious process of building institutions in their new cities. Uh, they're really copying what the Abbasids did. And so they're building the same kind of institutions that they did. But of course, they're going to build them better and more modern. So Cairo gets its famous city walls, which are still more or less standing, the famous gates that you can still walk through, the Al-Azhar Mosque and school. But they build some of the best hospitals in the world at the time. Now, these are not places you would want to be treated in today. You can't. But uh, for their time, they were the best. Uh, in fact, the great physician, Ibn al-Jazar, who's said to have written 30 books, and most of them are lost, but among them were some very detailed medical texts in which he claimed to summarize all the medical knowledge that had preceded him. Now granted, at that point in history, the amount of medical knowledge was not nearly as much as it is today. But they go into some great detail. He talks about all sorts of ailments, urine retention, kidney stones, hair loss, tonsillitis, impotence, and so on. They were specifically intended for teaching and training of doctors. So his intent was really not just for him to practice, but to grow a, a really like a national health service that could go practice in all the villages and cities of the empire. And he specifically addresses treatments for poorer people who cannot afford expensive treatments and for doctors who don't have access to the resources of a big hospital. So it's definitely a thing where he's doing medical research, but it is part of a national social services network. Well, Fatimid uh, Egypt excels in astronomy. They build a famous observatory in the Maqatam Hills. If you've ever been to Cairo, you'll know the Makatam Hills because they're a very large hill complex out in the desert that sticks way up. And you know, given the clear skies, this is an excellent site for astronomy. You have pretty much unobstructed views all, all year long. But the Fatimids will also try to copy the Abbasids in other regards. And this includes the building of schools, libraries, and research facilities. And so the central research institution that they build in Cairo is called Dar al-Hikmah. And if that sounds familiar, it sounds a lot like Beit al-Hikmah in Baghdad. Uh, that resemblance is very intentional. In fact, it's even more so in Arabic because the words Dar and Beit both mean house. So they both mean house of wisdom. But in fact, a Dar is usually a larger and fancier house than a bait. A bait is a normal house that you live in. So we use the word Dar today for like a publishing house or a fashion house, for example. So in a sense, they are one-upping the, the Abbasids, sort of the mansion of wisdom that they have. And this can be tricky because if you search for House of Wisdom today on the internet, you will get results for both of them and they'll be mixed together. And also you have to be careful because there are a lot of places today that call themselves Darul Hikmah, a lot of colleges and so forth that use that. But they build Darul Hikmah to 
essentially rival and surpass Beit al-Hikmah in uh, Baghdad. So this is the situation on the eve of Crusades, when things really start to fall apart, when the wave of invasions comes. The Muslim world is never going to be the same after that. And so when people today make sweeping generalizations about the Muslim world, about why it was the leader of science, philosophy, and the arts, and then suddenly switch to conservatism, you have to consider the situation. You know, two centuries of crusaders and Mongols running up and down your country and burning your cities to the ground and killing everybody, that might make you a little bit defensive also. In any case, if the Sunni and Shia were ever going to reconcile, if the Muslim world were going to come together again into one great empire, that all becomes very hypothetical once the invasions start. Now we know history is nothing if not ironic. So the eastern Sunni Abbasid part of the Muslim world will be devastated, never to recover. The survivors who come out of that are the Turkish military who will dominate that area well into the 20th century. And ironically, it will become the Mongols who conquer and become Islamicized themselves and establish their own later Islamic dynasties. The Shiite Fatimids do survive for a few centuries, but the turmoil of internal wars and external threats uh, basically turns our great Shiite Caliphate into a great Sunni Ayyubid Mamluk state, which will last again well up into the modern period, really into the 1800s. But the irony is that it is Shiite Fatimid Egypt that really becomes the base upon which the great Sunni Mamluk state and the Arab world is built. They are going to share art, architecture, institutions, uh, forms of government, and so on. We're going to talk about all of those in the future, but it's important for us to get a picture of what the world looked like when this trauma began. And it's also good for us to see a Shiite state in action and see that it's essentially as progressive, enlightened, and prosperous as its Sunni counterparts. And so that is our first look at the Fatimid Caliphate today. I thank you again for your kind attention. I appreciate your comments. Please leave us a rating. That's what keeps us on the air and bringing these broadcasts to you. We will see you again next time. Shukran Jazeelan. Wa ma salam.